Well, thanks, Steve and Catherine, for inviting me back. It's always good to be back. Thanks for doing that. And I'm glad I, I heard all around Facebook about how wonderful annual conference was where all the churches of Florida gather together. And we've been through a rough time, but we're on a new day, and it's really exciting. Um, as Steve mentioned, a month ago, I preached on untangling Christ from all the accoutrements that have happened over the last 2,000 years. It's not always been a pleasant thing. You know, I thought about bringing my phone up. I got my sermon on my phone. I thought about doing a Micah thing. Micah, I see you back there. Didn't he do a great job last Sunday? Wow. You know, uh, uh, and I talked about untangling Christ. And then I, it occurred to me, well, I ought to talk about who Jesus really is then. I want you to sort of untangle him. And that's not an easy task. But I want to lead into it with uh, a couple of funny stories. The first story is about a man in a truck. It's about a, Jan and I went to college. Oh, by the way, there's Jan and Siobhan there in the back. And we, we've had, uh, oh yeah, well. <laughs> People come up to me and they say, I don't care, you're here. I'm glad Siobhan's here. That's what they say. Uh, at any rate, uh, we flew out to Tucson, Arizona last Sunday and came back Thursday and we got to spend time with one of her former au pairs when the kids were young, this young woman from Russia. She's had a challenging uh, time with the second birth, and so Siobhan's kind of the mom or grandmom. And I like to say Siobhan's kind of like the mom, because if she's the grandma, then we're the great-grandparents. But at any rate, so glad we had this time, just the three of us. And is that Tom and Peggy Farmer back there? Holy cow, Tom and Farmer. Remember Tom? Amazing guy. Wow. Gee. What's that? He's here often, yeah, but I hadn't seen him in a while. Um, so Jen and I went to college in Kentucky, and there's, you know, the stereotypes about Kentucky, but there are a lot of these little sort of quasi-general stores where old guys sit on the porch and chew tobacco and tell stories and so one time this guy was sitting there and a truck pulls up and the guy gets out and they start talking. The guy said, oh, you're a farmer. And the old boy said, yeah, I'm a farmer. How big's your farm? Oh, it's about 65 acres. Well, I got a farm in Texas. We call it a ranch. Tell you how big it is. I can get in my truck in the morning at sunrise and I can drive one direction until sunset and I'm still not at the end of that ranch. The old boy thought a minute and he said, you know, I used to have a truck like that. <laughs> Craig, you got a truck like that, don't you? Uh, but but the, here's, the, here's the connection. They were talking about two different realities, right? They were two different deals. And sometimes when I look out in the world and I hear things that are happening, I think there's two different, really very different versions of what Christianity is all about. Is it about God and guns and country and people who look like me? Or is it about what Jesus said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor and release to the captives and healing for the sick? Is it about who's in and who's out, and sort of a judgmental thing and a closed deal? Or is it about an open, well, here's how Michael Curry, the bishop of the Episcopal Church says, that sees Jesus as the loving, liberating, life-giving expression and presence of God. Wow, let me say that again. The loving, liberating, and life-giving expression and presence 
of God, these two different versions. And I think it has to do with where you place Jesus. Is Jesus at the center of everything? Or has he been moved to the margins and you can create whatever else you want there? So that's the first thing. The second thing is a story about Albert Einstein when Jan and I were at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, just down the street, Mercer Street, about eight houses down from the library at Princeton, uh, was his house, Einstein's house. You know, he was there at the Institute of Advanced Studies, and there were stories about him shuffling around the uh, town in his house slippers and all that stuff. In the 1930s, he came here to this country, as many Jewish people did, to escape what was going on in Germany. And uh, he was famous for his e equals MC square and all these other things. But people didn't know what he looked like. There was a, it was before television, right? And so uh, he gave a lecture series, 30 nights, 30 different towns and cities in the Northeast. So he was going, he was chauffeured by a person, the same chauffeur every night. So they would go around town, and the chauffeur would sit in the back, listen to the lecture. After a while, the chauffeur said, look, you give the same lecture every night. I think I've got it down pat. In fact, by the end of it, the 30th night, the chauffeur said, look, how about if I give the lecture, you sit in the back? <laughs> and Einstein, began, you know, he said, okay, I'll play along with that. So the chauffeur gets up, gives this word-for-word -word lecture like Einstein did. Einstein's in the back, chauffeur's hat's on. And the lecture went great until the very end. After he finished, the, the moderator got up and said, what a great lecture. Now we have, we have a few moments for a few questions. <laughs> and so one person asked this really challenging question, and the chauffeur was pretty smart because he said, you know, We've come a long way. I'm a little shocked that you would ask such a simple... In fact, that question is so simple, I bet my chauffeur in the back could answer that question. <laughs> so that leads into who's the real Jesus? Who's the real and who's the imposter? Who's the real and who's the one we make up in our minds? Now, finding out who the real Jesus is is not always easy. In fact, Albert Schweitzer wrote a book called uh, The Quest for the Historical Jesus and he determined that it's almost impossible because we all want to create and find in the Bible the kind of Jesus who looks like us or who we like, who we want him to be. It's very tricky. That's why it's important to be in a community of faith like Trinity where all ideas are open where you can sort of navigate this together and you can sort of iron against iron and you can sort of sort this out together. But it's very very difficult, and I want you to know that I'm aware that what I'm going to present now is, is my particular take on it. I think it goes out of the New Testament, uh, but you can sort it out yourselves. It's an invitation to that. So, I want to pull up five or six things. First of all, and I think it's really important. It's almost obvious, but it's really important. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew very Jewish. It's a big deal because over time that has gotten away from us. We've played that down. Even scholars talked about the Greek influence on Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. He's very Jewish. It can get lost. 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead, in the book of Romans, Paul's writing from Corinth to the people in Rome, these house churches made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and Gentile, Gentile Christianity was exploding. And like what happens is the Gentiles thought, well, 
we're pretty important. <laughs> we're growing faster than you. We're bigger than you are. We're more important than you are. And Paul had to say, wait a minute now. You've been grafted. Look it up, Romans eleven seventeen. You've been grafted into the root. You're not the root. The root, you don't support the root. The root supports you. See, that issue is already on, going there. So Jesus was a Jew from the, Matthew, our text today. Do we have the text, uh, Debbie, or not? Okay, here's Matthew. You always skip over this, don't you? You go to the right to the nativity story. <laughs> An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. So all the generations, now this is 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Do you think Matthew wants us to see that Jesus was Jewish? Absolutely. Absolutely. His name, Yeshua, Joshua, means he shall save. He engaged in the Jewish rituals, circumcision on the eighth day. They went to the Jewish feast. His family did. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2? Uh, he was there for Pentecost. They got lost in the temple, left behind, all of that. They were very Jewish. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew he worshipped in the synagogue. He held the Torah in high regard. He kept kosher. He dressed like a Jew. There's a Hebrew word, tzitzit. I don't know if I can pronounce it right. T-Z-I-T, Z-I-T. It's the fringes on the bottom of the Jewish garments. And you remember when the person, woman needed healing? She said, if I can touch the fringe, the tzitzit of his garment. Jesus dressed like a Jew. He was Jewish. As Amy Jill Levine, a professor at New Testament, a Jewish person, professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt, she says this, Jesus was, it was, he was Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Cleveland. <laughs> he was Jesus of Nazareth. So it's a big deal. Even our phrasing that I'm just becoming more aware of the Old Testament. Rather than Hebrew Bible. Well... So here's the question I have that I've been wrestling with. If the Christian church through history had embraced the Jewishness of Jesus, would there have been as all the anti-Semitism that we've had the last 2,000 years? Ooh, did you catch that question? If we'd embraced the Jewishness of Jesus, would we have so much anti-Semitism? Let me ask you this. If we'd embraced the Jewishness of Jesus, would there have been an Auschwitz? Would there have been a Dachau? I don't know. But I do wonder about that. In the 1920s and 30s and here in the U.S., the KKK terrorized not just black people, but Jews and Catholics and immigrants. Often in the name of Christ, if you can believe it. This Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish scholar and professor at New Testament at Vanderbilt. She grew up in Massachusetts, and she remembers in the 1960s on the school bus a friend saying to her, she was just seven years old, I think, you killed our Lord. I did not, she said. Yes, you did. Our priest said you did. 
It was in the 1960s that Pope John XXIII in the Second Vatican Council, that fresh wind that blew through the Catholic Church, finally condemned the teaching that had been around for hundreds of years. The teaching was that all Jews everywhere were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it's not a big leap from that to Auschwitz, if you really believe that. Now, fortunately, like most pe many people, they don't always hold to the theology of the church. They live above the theology. And fortunately for her and for us, as people read her literature, her Christian friends had modeled for her the grace and friendship that are at the heart of the church. And at the heart of church, like Trinity, as Stephen and Catherine have already indicated today, this is a place where people can come and come and see and check it out and experience something called grace and love. You may remember, and I'm not trying to pick on other denominations, but you may remember as late as 1980 that the Reverend Bailey Smith, president of Southern Baptist Convention, announced as at a religious roundtable national affairs briefing in Dallas, God Almighty does not hear the prayers of a Jew. 1980. Well, I know a Methodist pastor in North Georgia, North Atlanta. You may know him too. I think it was baccalaureate or something in their service. They were going to have a Jew. He said, I will not have a Jew standing in my pulpit. Methodist church. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> really important. Not to sideline this fact, not to deny it. And if you have a chance to join Steve and Catherine in their trip to the Holy Land this May coming up, it'll enrich your understanding and appreciation of that. Let's celebrate and remember Actually, on the way out last service, a guy grabbed me on the way out. I'd never seen him before. And he said, I've been waiting 40 years for the sermon, this sermon. I said, what do you mean? Who are you? <laughs> he told me his name. I don't remember. And he said, but I'm Jewish. I don't think he often comes. I don't know if he often comes here. Uh, think about that. Put yourself in that position. You come to a Christian church. Well, at any rate, you, you get the point I'm trying to make. Secondly, Jesus was a refugee, an immigrant. Now you're starting to meddle, Johnson. Okay, well, all right. But it's true. Matthew chapter 2, after the birth, after the birth of Jesus, Herod and his paranoia, remember? He sent his people out to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And what did Mary and Joseph do? They took Jesus and they escaped to where? Egypt. Boy, you're good. They escaped to Egypt. They were refugees. They were immigrants. Seven years, we think. We don't know how many. Uh, it's important to remember that. Abraham and Sarah, the father of the faith, father and mother of the faith, they, they were immigrants from Ur to Canaan. Their great-grandchildren were refugees from a famine. You remember this story in Genesis? Joseph had already gone down. He'd stored the grain. There's famine in Canaan. His brothers came down. It's a great, powerful story. But don't forget, they were refugees from Canaan to Egypt. And then there was the exile. 
There was the diaspora where Jews are, think of Tevian, the fiddler on the roof, were scattered all around the world. That's why the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures are so clear. We were wanderers, and they set aside seven cities of refuge and places of sanctuary because they knew that they were wanderers, and the whole Judeo-Christian history has been pretty consistent of embracing foreigners and strangers and immigrants with kindness and grace. Now, I know there's a problem at the border, and I know there's different theories about what to do about the border, and I know every country needs to have a secure border, and, but somehow at the same time, we need to live into this reality that is our faith as Christians and followers of Christ, that there's got to be a level of kindness and graciousness in the midst of all that's going on. I don't have the answer, but I know okay, I don't have the answer. <laughs> but I know kindness and grace needs to be Extended. Jesus was a refugee and an immigrant. Thirdly, Jesus was a Middle Eastern person, right? And his skin color was probably not like mine. Even though I grew up, as many of you did, with two paintings of who Jesus was reported to look like. One is the Solomon Head of Christ. And the other is Revelation 3.20. It's basically that Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't white. I'm pretty sure he was. Why did we make him white? Well, that's what we do. We make him look like us. And the repercussions of that, well, I don't know. I didn't think I was biased or prejudiced. But look at these other faces of Jesus that we have from around the world. The next one. You can Google these. Look at the final one. Go now, that's what some scholars believe Jesus looked like. Now, i got to tell you, when I first saw that, I took a step back. I took two steps back. I said, I don't want Jesus to look like that. I'm just being honest with you. And I'm leaving town tomorrow, so. <laughs> that's what I thought. I mean, I thought, oh, my gosh. But put yourself in the position of somebody from a different culture, a different colorful background, and all they see is the Solomon head of Christ, a white Jesus. Related to this, back in 1970, I was studying German language at a Goethe Institute in a little town called Stauffen, south of, south of Frankfurt, the southwestern part of Germany. And there were lots of other students from all around the world. Um, my roommate was from Turkey. Uh, one of my best friends, there are people from Vietnam, one of my best close friends for a while was this guy from Syria. I've often wondered what's happened to his family. I wish I'd have kept in touch, all the crisis there. But we were talking and we got to talking about our faith. I said, I'm a Christian. He said, I'm an Assyrian Christian. And I said, Assyrian Christian? I don't think I've ever heard of that. <laughs> he didn't laugh. <laughs> he said, well, We've been around for 2,000 years. <laughs> I said, really? 
Yeah, you remember when Paul and Barnabas, it's right there in your, your New Testament too, Paul and Barnabas, they go to Antioch, a town in Syria. That's when the followers of Jesus were first called Christian. <laughs> That's in Syria. That's my ancestry. He didn't say, you Americans think Jesus came to serve, you know, save only you in the 20th, 21st century. No. I was a bit embarrassed. But that's kind of... I wonder if we remember that Jesus was dark-skinned in Middle Eastern, if we would have a different view of things about life. Fourthly, you hanging in there? Jesus wondered, welcome those on the edges of society. Early on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, I think he goes to the temptation, but he's preaching. He begins his preaching career. And he preaches the good news, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And he begins healing people who are mentally challenged, people who are paralyzed, people who are infirm. And, I keep at, and then, at the beginning of chapter 5, he welcomes them and calls them blessed in the Beatitudes. And I'm thinking, what's going on there? And what I think is going on is those people have been marginalized because of the theology of the day that's been around forever. Job tried to put it to the side. He did a great job, but it kept persisting. That is to say, if something's wrong with you, it's because you did something wrong and God is mad at you. You've sinned and this is your punishment and you're afflicted. I mean, you still say this today. Oh, I must have done something wrong because something happened to me. It's nonsense, but those people were marginalized. And Jesus came to say, no, my kingdom, my grace, my love is for everybody. And he included all. All. I was learned recently that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was nominated in 1932 as the presidential candidate for the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1932, he did something unprecedented. Some of you remember this, don't you? Uh, <laughs> at any rate, uh, he did something unprecedented. He went to the convention to give an acceptance speech. Nobody had ever done that before. And by this time, his polio, you know, he had polio, and it was fairly well known, although it was hidden. But when he walked up on that stage in front of that podium with his son's help, Herbert Hoover's, the opposition, his team said, we've just won the election because this country is not going to elect a cripple. Well, they were wrong on that. <laughs> and when Roosevelt gave his inaugural speech in March, he gave those famous lines, we have nothing, to there's nothing to fear but, hey, you're better than the last service, so good. <laughs> nothing to fear but fear itself. And then he went on to say, Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes. Isn't that interesting how he used that word? He who had paralysis, he used the word paralyzed to turn it on its head. Paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. That's what Tom Berlin did this week, didn't he? Yeah, retreat into advance. I think one of the most beautiful trees on this property, and there are many of them, is out here, the one that's lays flat. Have you seen that one? All the kids play on it. It's broken, but it's accessible. Accessible. Well, 
I grew up in a church. Did you grow up in a church that had steps up into the sanctuary? That was before we were aware of people who weren't able to get up into the steps. And we, in a sense, excluded that. But So my question there is, if we understood and embraced the reality that Jesus welcomed and embraced those who had been marginalized for things beyond their control, would we have adopted the Americans with Disability Act sooner than 1990? Do you hear me, Roger? Yeah. After the ADA was adopted, well, even later, after Siobhan's accident, an acquaintance of mine up north said, I think the ADA has gotten out of hand. I said, I don't feel that way. <laughs> and certainly the, United, the, 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 the church has embraced this aspect of Jesus' healing ministry and all the proliferation of medicine that is a hallmark of Christianity. United Methodist hospitals, Catholic hospitals. I mean, it's been a great thing. Number five, Jesus was a rabbi and a teacher. That's what he did. He sat down. He gave the Beatitudes. He believed his teachings were important. And some of what's developed in Christianity is, is the neglect of his teaching. Almost as if the first three years of his ministry were set aside and we focus only on the last week of his life. I noticed in the creed, we believe in Jesus as teacher, example, and redeemer. And I'm grateful for the last week of Jesus' life. Believe me, uh, my salvation, your salvation is... But the first three years, love your enemies, be merciful, be peacemakers. and do unto others. And then finally, Jesus preached that the kingdom of God, I think, I think this is really important, the kingdom of God, that is to say, God's presence is within you. Luke 17, 21. That's something precious, something godlike, God's very image is within each of us. That God has placed that there. That you're not flawed but that God's presence is there, and your task is to learn how to live into that. In our current national crisis of mental health, there are so many negative, belittling voices tear people apart, tear away the heart of people, harming their self-image. The call of Jesus' followers is to remind people that the God of the universe has placed a part of himself into each of us, a place of beauty and grace and love. And the most wonderful thing is that Jesus' death and resurrection affirms and confirms everything Jesus said and did. It confirms that. I mean, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, you could almost write him off. But because he did and all that he taught, and I've just scratched the surface of who the real Jesus is. I hope you'll spend the rest of your life in eternity and discovering, rediscovering Jesus as if for the very first time, and that you'll join that community of followers when Jesus said, follow me, and you said, here I am. <laughs> Almighty God, we give you thanks for this congregation, these amazing people who seek to follow you and all they say and do. Bless them. Bless Steve and Catherine, Marissa, all who lead this congregation.
into the beautiful, brighter, wonderful days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.